This teaching comes to you from the team at Anchor Church Sydney. We hope you're blessed by it. For more teachings, resources or info, check out our website www.anchorchurch.com.au So I'm Wendla Meadows. I am in management consulting. I have been in Australia for about two years now through my job. My name is Keith Meadows. Um, I put a ring on it, so she's my wife. Um, yeah, we're part of the Stanmore GC. So apartheid is very difficult to try and summarize quite shortly and briefly. It's essentially the minority white government basically legislated separation of people according to race. Um, it also went into economics, um, you know, black people weren't allowed in business districts and in residential areas that have to carry passes. Certain occupations as well were restricted for, for white people. So the quality of education was vastly different. Uh, black people were not allowed to get educated past, I guess, really being able to do manual work or maybe a teacher if you're lucky. An example of this is um, the land. 80% um, of the land was reserved for the minority white population. So it, it was a pretty uh, destructive regime. There was only so much that I would say maybe my grandmother and my great-grandmother could do economically to support their families. It was, I would imagine, pretty scary for them. Um, I remember a particular story that my mom told me once um, during the 1976 uh, June 16 um, riot where the primary school and high school students were standing up against the government who was introducing Afrikaans as the main language of teaching. Like it's not your native language. So you can imagine just the outrage and these kids were, you know, bravely went into the streets and protested. Um, and the policemen gunned a couple of them down. So my mom um, remembers just cowering under a desk as an 11-year-old um, child. I think it was very difficult for my family. It was a little bit easier for me because I was very young. I do remember as a child, there were certain places I wasn't, what well, we were not allowed to go to. I started grade two just as apartheid ended, so at least I could have the opportunity to get a better education. Life during apartheid for white families, and specifically for my family, was, was very easy. Um, we had all the opportunities. Um, my family specifically wasn't considered a wealthy family by any means. We had two vehicles, we had a house, a swimming pool, um, but we were not considered wealthy what in the white community would be considered poor and really you know on the other side of the fence you've got black people who can't afford education. I met Keith I guess four years before we actually started dating I met him at a Bible study. The same mutual friend who was hosting the Bible study invited me along to Gatecrasher 30th so I did and I think yeah there was just something was different for both of us then. And yeah, proposed to her, got down on, on one knee, proposed to her, asked her to be my wife, and yeah. She said yes! <laughs> <laughs> 
world. <laughs> I think Keith will, will tell you that he's dad. When when he mentioned that, oh, I'm dating someone and she's black, his dad was like, so why is that relevant information? So I think my family were not completely shocked uh, and they were quite supportive as well. So we were very, very lucky and are still very lucky. Culturally, uh, it depends on where you go in South Africa. Um, within Joburg, you could find places where people visually show their displeasure. They'll look at you, shake their heads. Um, culturally, there's, there's quite a large mix still. Coming to a country where you are all of a sudden in the vast minority, having come from a country where you are in the majority, was um, quite jarring for me and, and quite frightening to a certain extent. Um, but I, I felt the church that I went to previously and Anchor has been a safe space. What I think the church could be doing better, um, I think it's not so much the church itself, I think as people within the church, just it's human nature to sort of gravitate to people that look like you. C.S. Lewis puts it in a, you have that moment of me too. Humans just gravitate toward, towards people that look like them. I think as a church, as individuals outside the church, as we live our lives, we can be intentional about having and ensuring that our spaces are not represented just by one race or even just one gender, but really, um, making it a, a, a safe space and a, a good space for all cultures to be an intention of inviting and learning um, other cultures and other races. That passage in Revelation speaks very clearly of people from all nations, all tribes, all tongues, being together, um, adorned in the same white robes, um, singing eternal praises worthy of the Lamb. Um, so it's very clear from that passage and, and from a number of other passages, Ephesians 2 is one of my favorites, which talks about the equality of every person, the equality of, of all people, um, that in the eyes of the gospel, there's no Jew or Gentile, there's no better or worse, we are all equal. Um, and the, the picture that's painted in, in Revelation is, is this multiculturalism, this transcultural gospel. Um, and so, as Christians, when we're asking for God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven, we are asking that we be immersed in a transcultural situation, in a transcultural environment, where race, gender, age, doesn't matter, that we're all equal, that we love each other with the love of Jesus. And so what that means, I think, for us is challenging ourselves, put yourself out of your comfort zone, go to someone else's culture and, and actually seek to learn, um, to learn the, the great things about their culture that glorify God. There's a lot of God's order in community, which I've learned from African culture through, through Buntle. Um, I don't think I would have learned that if I had not sought to understand African culture better. The church needs to be that safe place. It needs to be the example um, for transculturalism, the safe place where everybody is actually equal. Can we just thank Keith and Bontley again for sharing their story? It was amazing. We actually did that um, mid-sermon in the first service, and I had to, um, I watched it side of stage and had to come back and preach, but I was a bit of a mess. Um, as a South African, that story was um, really close to home, and I want to thank you guys for being brave enough to share your story. It's really, really beautiful. Thank you for that. And for Sam Vig, who put that one together. 
this, uh, this week we do have a Connect course. If you're new or visiting, Tash and I would love you to ha- have you over to our house for a meal. Um, so if you haven't yet attended a Connect course or if you're thinking about making Anchor home, then please fill that out on your Connect card or head to the Connect desk this morning. You can uh, say hello to Keith up the back there. Uh, he'll give you all of the details for the Connect course on Thursday night. But if you're new visiting, haven't done the Connect course, we would love to have you over to our house for a meal. Uh, we are finishing, as Bree mentioned, our series called Better Together today. And uh, we are looking at some amazing promises that God has made. So I'm going to pray for us. So please join me as we pray. Father God, we thank you that you're a good God. And we thank you that you have made promises, promises that are certain and sure and trustworthy. And God, as we seek to worship you in a culture that basically tells us that we're irrelevant, would you help us to believe your promises over the lies of the culture around us? Would you help us to live in light of the beautiful future that lies ahead for your people and to help us embody that reality now of who we will be in the age to come? God, we pray that you would speak to us through your word now, challenge us, convict us, Shape us by your spirit. We pray that you would do this work and we ask it in Jesus' name of God's people said, Amen. Well, this week I was uh, doing some research, which is code for searching the internet for a sermon illustration about doomsday preppers. And it's not much of a thing in Australia, although it is a bit of a growing trend at the moment. But in the US, it's a really significant you know, movement of doomsday preppers. In fact, they're all buying these these old military bunkers in the Midwest and moving out there and stocking, you know, fuel and food and all this kind of crazy stuff, preparing for the impending doom that lies ahead for our world. Um, and it, yeah, there's a couple of things that these guys do. One of the things is they, they have prepared and ready to go these things called bob packs or inch packs. Now, bob, a bob pack is a a backpack filled with supplies to help you survive for 72 hours. In the event of an emergency or some civil unrest, there's a backpack that will get you through the first 72 hours and you're okay. But there's another backpack that they call the INCH pack. And the INCH, it's an acronym. It stands for I'm Never Coming Home. The INCH pack is the backpack that you take when the unrest is so disastrous that you've got no hope of ever coming home and it is ready for you to survive an indefinite amount of time away from home. <coughs> the reality of these doomsday um, preppers is that they are living in light of what they believe a future that is coming. They're preparing for that now. They're literally storing up food. They're purchasing property in the middle of the outback. They're store, um, stockpiling fuel and ammunition sometimes even. They're getting ready for what they believe the future will hold. And it seems to me that as the church, that's what we ought to be doing. We ought to be preparing for the future, for what lies ahead. But the question is, what, what is our future as a church? Many people are freaking out at the moment about the future that lies ahead for the people of God. That's not much different from Elijah in 1 Kings. If you remember the story of Elijah in 1 Kings 18, Elijah confronts the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel and there's this this, um, 
wrestle as this like God off that happens where it's Elijah verse 450 prophets of Baal and he calls down fire from heaven that consumes the sacrifice that's there and then he proceeds to slaughter the 450 prophets of Baal which is a you know pretty brutal way of taking victory the next day Queen Jezebel hears about what he has done and she's out to get him and so Elijah flees for 40 days and 40 nights he flees through the desert until he reaches Mount Horeb the mountain of the Lord And there God turns up and says to Elijah, what are you doing here? And Elijah says to him, well, all of Israel, everyone has forsaken you. They've worshipped the gods of the Baals and I'm the only one left. There are no other people of God left. I'm the only one and they're trying to kill me as well. He is freaking out about the future of God's people. In fact, he thinks that the people of God are now on the critically endangered species list. They're about to be exterminated. They're about to be eradicated off the face of the planet. He is freaking out and he cries out to God. And it seems to me that at least sometimes the tone of social media carries that bit of an Elijah sense. In fact, (coughs) I had a phone call from a guy a couple of months ago asking a few questions about our church. And all these like theological questions wanted to know. And I said, so you're going to come visit. That's probably the best way to figure out who we are is just come visit us on a Sunday. So well, I live quite a long way away. I'm right at the top of the Northern Beaches. I'm over an hour away. And I said, oh, well, why don't you go to a church up there? There's plenty of good churches up there. And he said, oh, no, no. All of the churches on the Northern Beaches are apostate. They've all forsaken the gospel, sold out to new age spirituality. They're of the devil. He's infected the whole church. And I was in my head, I'm like, this guy thinks he's Elijah. And so I started saying, no, no, there's this church and this church. And he had an answer for every single one. I was like, definitely an Elijah moment right here. He's saying, I'm the only one left on the whole of the insular peninsula. He is the only person of God left. And there are people who feel that that's the future of the church at the moment. Is that They see the tone of you know, culture in 2019 and feel this marginalization of the church and rise of secularism. It threatens the church. And the question people are asking is, will the church have a future or will the church have a funeral? Some would celebrate that. Some would celebrate the moment that the church died, believe that its society would be a better place without it. Well, today I want to give us a confident assurance of the ongoing relevance and beauty and perseverance of the church, of God's people. And I want to do that, excuse me, by pointing us to a couple of verses, a couple of promises that God makes about the church. And the first promise is from Matthew chapter 16. This is a promise that Jesus makes to his disciples. So Matthew chapter 16, verse 16, Jesus has asked his disciples what popular opinion is about him. And there are all these answers, Elijah, John the Baptist, one of the prophets. And Simon says this, Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. That's a promise. That is a promise. Jesus says, I will Build my church. Not I might build my church or I would like to build my church or perhaps I plan to build my church. I will build 
his, my church. He will see that the name of the Father is glorified. He will seek and save the lost. He will draw a people to himself to worship God. He will do it. He's promised it. Now, why does Jesus say this in this moment? Because he's about, just a few verses later, he is about to tell the disciples what's going to happen. He's about to tell them that he will go to the cross and be crucified and they're going to start to doubt the plan. They're going to start to doubt the claims that he is the Messiah. And so Jesus is reassuring them, guys, this is what the future looks like. This is what lies ahead. I will call to myself a people who will worship me. I'm building the gathering. I'm building the church. Trust me. And in fact, I'm going to use you to do it. He promises to build his church. Now, I don't know about you, but that's a relief. For me, at least, that's a relief. Because it means that the church is not on my shoulders. It's not on the shoulders of our staff team at Anchor. It's not on the shoulders of our elders or missionaries or denominations or Bible colleges. The future of the church rests on the promise of Jesus that he says he will build it. And yes, he's going to use us. Yes, we are his hands and feet to a world that desperately needs to hear this good news. But as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3, 6, I, will, I planted, Apollos watered, but it's God who gave the growth. It's God who brings the increase. This is Jesus' work. This is what he promises to do, to draw people to himself, to gather the church. Now, this means that what we're a part of here at Anchor, church planting, ministry, making disciples, this is a supernatural activity and a privilege that we get to serve alongside Jesus in seeing his mission fulfilled, in seeing his name established, the church growing, disciples made. That is a wonderful privilege that we get to do, co-laborers alongside Jesus. And I think this promise ought to fill us with great confidence about the future. That Jesus says, I'm going to do it. I've got it. I'm on it. I'm going to make this happen. And he promises to do it. And he promises there, I don't know if you notice this in the second half, that nothing will stop it. That nothing will thwart his plan. Second half of verse 18 says this, I will build my church and... The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The gates of hell shall not prevail against the church. Now, gates are a symbol of defense. Gates keep something out and keep other things in. They're a symbol of strength. And the gates of hell keep the dead in place. They have power. Not until the resurrection of Jesus, however, because when Jesus dies and rises again from the dead, he goes behind the gates, finds the key and bursts those gates open and sets humanity free because he has at that point destroyed the power of death and the gates of hell have no longer any power, any authority to bind and hold. Jesus is saying here that even death itself has no power. Even hell itself cannot thwart his plans to build his church, to gather his people, to have a people who would worship him. Now, I take this to mean that the church will never die, that the church will never have a funeral. And history is testimony to that fact, is it not? I mean, just, just after um, these words were written in Matthew 16, you flick over your Bible to the book of Acts and you see 120 scared disciples in the upper room wondering what's happened because 
They've started to doubt the plan. Was this the Messiah? Have we believed in vain? Have we followed in vain? And then Jesus uh, comes back, appears to them, pours his spirit out and sends them on mission. And we begin to see the church growing. Jesus gathering to himself a people through the apostles preaching and by the power of the spirit, the church is growing. And it goes on and on and on through the book of Acts until today. More than 2 billion people on the face of the planet alive today would say that the person of Jesus has significantly affected their worldview. History is testimony to the fact that this promise that Jesus has made is true. I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. That means that there is no generation past. Sorry, that that is a certain promise that Jesus gives us. No economic downturn, no Islamic uprising, no secularization of culture, no government pressure or agency, no false teaching, no spiritual opposition. Nothing can prevail against the church. The King of kings and Lord of lords has promised that he will build his church. I remember a number of years ago being at our National Acts 29 conference and our lead, uh, the the, um, network director for Acts 29, Pastor Adam Ramsey from the Gold Coast, was preaching on this passage and he said, to the church that was gathered there. He said, church, we are not playing D. And for all those who aren't familiar with NBA or basketball, playing D means playing defense. He says, no one goes into battle with a gate. You don't go into battle swinging a gate around. You go into battle with a sword or a club or a baton. Gates are defensive mechanisms and we are not playing D. We are on the offense. We are on the front foot. We're playing attack because... Jesus has promised to build his church. He has filled us with his spirit. He sent us on mission. This truth ought to fill us with confidence about the future. The second verse I want to draw your attention to is Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20 and 21. So flick over with me if you've got a Bible or have a look on the screen. Ephesians 3, 20 to 21. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, According to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. 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 Now that is a doxology. That is an attribution of praise or glory, not because God lacks it, but because he's worth it. And we find these doxologies all through the New Testament an attribution of glory towards God. And we see here how God is glorified. We see here that God is glorified both in sphere and both in scope, that there is an arena of God's glory and that there is a time where God would be glorified. So firstly, we see here that God is glorified in Jesus. I think we get that bit, right? We know that Jesus glorifies the Father. We see that all throughout the Bible. That's why he came. That's what he does. He glorifies the Father. But you notice Paul adds in there something very interesting. And this is the only place as far as I'm aware in the New Testament where he says, and in the church, God is glorified in Jesus and the church. Now, why? Why is God glorified in the church? Well, as the famous theologian F.F. Bruce says, the church is a masterpiece of God's grace. The church is a masterpiece of God's grace. It's his artwork, his handiwork. 
as God, as Paul will explain uh, a little bit earlier in Ephesians chapter 2, the church is the people of God gathered together, made citizens, made members of God's household, built on the cornerstone of Jesus as God reconciles Jew and Gentile together in one new humanity, one new people. That's the church. And that is the sphere where God demonstrates His grace and His plan and His power and His work. Literally, we, you sitting here, are a masterpiece of God's grace as He draws people from every single ethnic, socioeconomic, cultural background together to worship Jesus with one voice. And in God's infinite wisdom, He has chosen us, the people of God, to demonstrate, to brag about His work and His plan. It's phenomenal. Check out what Paul says a little bit earlier on in in Ephesians 3.10. He says this halfway through the sentence, so that the church... The manifold, sorry, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. There is something bigger happening here than us declaring to the watching world that God exists, that He's good, that He's gracious. In fact, we are a demonstration to the cosmic beings, the heavenly places. God is showing off. He's showing what he's done. He's showing his plan and his grace and his wisdom. This was my plan from the very beginning. And now you see what I've been doing. Look how beautiful this is. Recently, I've been um, YouTubing a bit. And uh, I came across this show called Mighty Carmots. Has anyone, anyone seen that? One person. It's honestly, it's an amazing show. The premise is two guys who live in Sydney started modifying their cars in, the dry, in their mum's driveway, and they filmed everything. It's been happening for 10 years. They now have 2.5 million subscribers, and that's their full-time gig, just modifying cars and filming it on YouTube. But the way that the show works at the moment is that there's two guys, Marty and Moog, and one of them buys a car, sight unseen, the cheapest car that they want, on the, on the internet. They haven't inspected it. Cheapest one they get, they buy it. And they have a plan to modify this car and reveal this car at the end of the episode, the end of the series. But the the other person doesn't know what the plan is, doesn't know what car is. And at the start of every series, they reveal the car and they call it a nugget. It is completely unregistered, broken, blown up engines, all this kind of stuff. And you think, what are they going to do with this car? But then you get nine episodes later at the end of the series and you see them reveal this amazing car and what they've done with it. And you, you think back to that first episode, you think that seemed crazy. But now I can see the genius behind the plan that they had here. The end product, the end result demonstrates how good the plan was. And that's what Paul is saying here. The, the very fact that the church exists, that we are who we are, is a demonstration that God's plan from the very beginning was an infinitely wise, good, beautiful plan to gather for himself a people who would worship him from every tribe, nation, tongue and language. So the church is the sphere where God is glorified. Us, we make God look good. But secondly, you'll notice there the scope of the glory of God in verse 21. Let's go back to that verse, chapter 3, verse 21. To him 
be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus when? Throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Throughout all generations forever and ever. God is glorified in Jesus and in the church throughout every generation of humanity and even into eternity. That's what that means, forever and ever. It literally means forever and ever. For eternity, as God's people gather around the throne and worship Jesus, they will continue to glorify God for what He has done. And that means there is no generation past or generation future where God will not have a remnant for Himself of people who would worship Him, be His holy people. And it kind of got me thinking this week with all of the criticism and negativity that surrounds the church at the moment, and some of it is justified. I wonder what God sees when he looks at us. I wonder what God sees when he sees this thing that he's been working on for however long he's been working on it. And the image of a tapestry, I think, is really helpful. If you're familiar with a tapestry, it's a woven artwork on a, on a loom and you weave twine through it and the backside of the, the loom looks very messy. It's all, you know, frayed and lots of tangled twine going everywhere. But you turn it over and this beautiful artwork emerges. A picture is visible. I think that's a nice picture of the church. That's what the church looks like. You see, underneath we might look messy and broken and sinful and divisive and all of that kind of stuff, but you turn it over and look at the church from God's perspective and he sees, he sees the mess, but he also sees beyond the mess and sees the beauty of what he has created and what he is doing in the midst of his people. I feel tired of the criticism of God's people justified or not, because I love the bride. And you might think, well, it's very easy for you, Matt, to be vested. This is your job. This is your livelihood. Of course, the church is important to you. But the church is beautiful. And, and I wish people would see it. I wish people would see beyond the storylines in our media and actually get a window into this community. Because if they did, they would see what God is doing. They would see people whose lives are being changed they would see people who are getting set free from sinful patterns of behavior that have trapped them and held them in bondage their whole life. They would see people who are being healed emotionally and spiritually and sometimes even physically. They would see a community of grace. They would see new mums who when they give birth are delivered meals for three weeks by this community. They would see gospel communities that are places of family where people are caring for each other and carrying each other's burdens and praying for each other. I wish people would get to see what God is doing here because the church truly is beautiful, what God is doing. The true church, the redeemed, gathered people of God is on the stage of the cosmos and our purpose is to display the richness of the wisdom of God in his plan to use us to scream to the principalities and powers that he's got this, that his plan was good. Could there be a higher calling for us as God's people? Could there be anything more central to God's purposes here on earth than what he is doing in our midst? 
Yes, we're the light of the world. But more than that, we're a light, we're a witness to the principalities and powers in the heavenly realms. It is staggering what God is doing through his people. And that happens when we are a people of hope, people of unity, a people of grace, a people of love, a people of truth. That's what it looks like. It's a beautiful picture of God's people from every generation and into eternity, glorifying God. Back to that question that I asked at the start, will the church have a future or a funeral? Well, thankfully, we're not left to guess this question because God has actually told us the answer. He's given us a glimpse, a window into what the future looks like. Have a look at this beautiful picture of the church in Revelation 7. This is the church glorifying God into eternity. This is the masterpiece on display. Revelation 7 verse 9. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. What an incredible, staggering picture. There's a couple of things that I think ought to fill us with hope from this passage here. The first is, this is a very large gathering. Did you pick that up? Here is a multitude of people that no one could count. This is a mega church if there ever was one. The biggest gathering of people ever. In fact, today, the biggest church that we know of in the world, I think, is in South Korea. It's called Yodai Full Gospel Church and it has 800,000 active members and they gather together on a Sunday in a gigantic sports stadium-like room and worship Jesus. This gathering here in Revelation 7 makes that church look like a small group Bible study in comparison. This is a large multitude that no one could count, which is strange for me because I think the church has perfected counting. If we're good at anything, it's a head count. Like we're meticulous with a head count and sometimes even prone to exaggeration on exactly how many people were here on a Sunday morning because it looks graphs and statistics look great. But here, this gathering is so large, it is innumerable, uncountable, if that's even a word for all your accountants in the room. And it reminds us of the promises that God made to Abraham. Remember, Genesis 12, God says to Abraham, I will bless you and through you bless all of the peoples of the earth and I will make your descendants like what? The stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. Uncountable. You cannot count. Try it. Go to Bondi Beach. Start sifting the grains of sand. You will never get there. Or you'll lose count and have to start again infinite amount of times. This is the promise that God has made. I will make your descendants so large that you will never be able to count them. The second thing that ought to fill us with hope is uh, this, this gathering, this church, is a multi-ethnic church. You see that in verse 9? From every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages. The church is a mosaic of the gospel. 
people from all sorts of ethnic backgrounds, all sorts of diverse cultures, languages, tribal groups, all together gathered around the throne and worshipping Jesus. And I've got no idea how that works with different languages. Maybe we're all just afforded the gift of tongues in the new creation. It can instantly understand what someone says in another. But that is a beautiful picture. And I think Keith and Bondler this morning, thank you for your story because they've helped us. Like Keith just preached that verse for me, so I don't have to do it. Just go back and rewatch the video again. We get to embody now what it looks like to live out that future reality. And I think one of the ways that we do that, as Keith mentioned, is that we're a people where there is no racism no classism, no tribalism, no subcultureism. We're one, we're united. And the things that make us different and distinct are nowhere near as strong as the thing that draws us together, the blood of Jesus. This is a multi-ethnic, transcultural people, and it's a big gathering. The third thing that ought to fill us with confidence here is that this is a victorious gathering. You'll notice here that these people, uh, John says there in his vision of the future, that they are wearing white robes and carrying palm branches. White robes are a symbol of victory. And the palm branches are a symbol of victorious celebration. You remember, as Jesus travels into Jerusalem on the donkey, people are waving what? Palm branches. This is the triumphal entry. And here in Revelation, you see this picture of people in white robes, celebrating, waving palm branches. This is a picture of victory, of triumph, of joy, of celebration of all that God has done because Jesus wins. He has the last say. His promises are fulfilled and the people are gathered to worship Him. What a wonderful, wonderful picture of the future that lies before us. We're a large, multi-ethnic victorious people of God. Of course, we have a future. John has just demonstrated it for us. You know, by all reports, the country where the church is growing the fastest in 2019 is Iran in the Middle East, which is also the ninth most dangerous country in the world to be a Christian, believe it or not. This is a country where the state is Islamic and it is illegal to own a Bible. It's illegal to profess worship of Jesus and it is illegal to convert from Islam to any other faith or worldview. And here, the church is exploding. If we're to believe the reports that are written that come out, there's actually a shortage of pools to baptize people in because there's so many converts. And the way that God has been doing this recently is he's been using media and technology. Satellite television is being beamed into these closed countries. The internet, social media is being used to engage a young generation of people who are hearing for the first time of the good news of Jesus and are being set free. This has been the case in China, whether the the growth of the church has been at points 11,000 converts a day and they kicked all the missionaries out. In fact, the projected um, growth of the church in China is 250 million people by 2030. Just let that sink in. 250 million people. The Communist Party in China is 90 million. Jesus is building his church. 
He's gathering people from all over the face of this globe, from every tribe and tongue and nation. You go back to 1 Kings 19 and there is Elijah on Mount Horeb having a whinge that he's the only one left. God, I'm the only one left. Everyone has forsaken you. They've turned their back. They're worshipping the gods of the Baals. And it's just me left. And they're trying to kill me too. And God responds to Elijah. He says, Elijah, get on with the business I've told you to do. Be a prophet. Anoint kings. And don't worry about the church. Don't worry about the people of God. For there are 7,000, a remnant, who have failed to bow the knee and worship the gods of the Baals. They've been faithful. They've been holy. God always has a people. He always has a remnant. A people who have been holy and faithful, who worship Jesus. And I want to suggest to us, church, now is not the time for us to lose confidence. Now is not the time for us to shrink back. Now is not the time for us to believe the story of irrelevance. The promises of God are true. Secularism, communism, atheism, these are all weak, weak forces in comparison to the power of God, the power of the Spirit, the beauty of the gospel and the perseverance of God's people. Remember what Jesus said in John 16, verse 33. He said, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. Peace because of these promises. In this world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. We know the end of the story. And so how do we live in light of this future reality that stands ahead for us? Well, the doomsday preppers are getting ready. They're doing the work. They're packing the bags. They're stockpiling. And as a church, we ought to be thinking about our future and being ready and preparing. You remember what Jesus said in the Lord's Prayer. He says, this is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. As it is in heaven. That picture that we see of Revelation 7, that's God's will. And we want to see that happen now. We prepare, we live now in light of our future reality. The people of God, united, large, multi-ethnic, triumphant, victorious people of God. A faithful remnant who would worship Jesus and be holy. Leslie Newbing in a, a A famous missionary said of the church that the church is the hermeneutic of the gospel. Hermeneutic is the study of interpretation of a text. And by that he means that the the church, the shared life of the local church is the best context for understanding the good news of Jesus. We get to put legs on it. We get to put flesh on it. We are the embodiment, the incarnation of the good news on the earth in the midst of this culture. And there is great hope for us. In cricket, there's um, a number of strategies that teams employ. Particularly if a team has a long session of batting in a second innings and they don't want to lose the game. There's really no hope of winning. The goal is just don't get out. Just don't lose the game. And So what they do is they get on the back foot and they just defend, 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 block, block, block. Don't get out, don't get out, don't get out. And sometimes I feel like that's how the church operates. 
We're so afraid of just fading into non-existence that we turn defensive and we just defend and defend and defend and pray, I don't want, as long as we don't die, as long as we don't die. But I want to suggest that these promises give us the confidence to step onto the front foot and start playing a little bit like David Warner, swing wildly and hope we hit a couple of sixes, knowing that we don't get out, knowing that we win the game at the end. We truly are better together, church. Our hope and prayer in this series is that this has given us confidence to be who we are, to be God's people in this cultural moment that we find ourselves with confidence. As a family, and that's what we are here at Anchor, a family, we live lives in connection, in relationship, the way that God originally intended us to live. We're people that care about holiness, striving together to pursue Christ's likeness and transformation in our lives. And our witness is strengthened as we embody that life together. And as the world watches on and sees us do that, united, every tribe, tongue, nation, language, together worshipping Jesus. In a world that says the church is irrelevant, dying, dangerous, Our prayer and hope is that you would step out of here in bold confidence, knowing what the future looks like, knowing what Jesus has called us to and doing it. We're going to respond this morning in a profound demonstration of our unity in the Lord's Supper. This meal together is an expression of what Jesus has done because the grape juice on the four stations around this room represents the blood of Jesus that was poured out in order to draw people together. This is what draws us together, a profession of faith in Jesus, irrespective of who you are, your background, what you've done, where you come from, what language you spoke. This meal is a meal of unity. And so I want to invite those of you who love Jesus to come forward and celebrate. But it's not just a meal of unity. This is a meal of participation in our future, a reminder of the reality that lies ahead for us. Because as we eat this meal together, we say, come Lord Jesus, come Lord Jesus. So I invite those of you who love Jesus to participate in this meal together, to celebrate, to remember. We're also going to respond in prayer. Our prayer team would be up the back. They would love to pray for you. Whatever needs you have this morning, you can identify them with an orange lanyard that will be around there next. And we're also going to give. We're going to offer our gifts, our generosity to God. The giving containers will come around in this next song. If you're a guest here this morning, you're under no obligation to give. You can put your Connect card and pen into that giving container. And we're going to respond in worship. So we invite you to stand to church and lead us in prayer as we respond to the goodness of our God. So let's stand together as one united people of God. Let me pray. Father God, we thank you. I thank you for every person in this room who represents a child of yours that you have purchased by your precious blood. Father God, thank you that you unite us together. You make us one new humanity. God, we long to live this out. And we know we mess it up, so we need your spirit. Please fill us. Help us to walk in repentance and faith. Help us to embody now our future reality. God, we thank you that even this morning as we declare your praises, this gathering is screaming, not just to this world, but to the heavenly realms 
that you are wise, that you are good, that you are gracious. So delight in the worship of our lips now. We prayed in Jesus' name and God's people said, Amen.